Yes, I remember everything. I know who I am. I am the Doctor. I am the Doctor. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, a Doctor Who podcast that has absolutely nothing to do with pirates, parrots, gold, shivering timbers, or walking planks. Most definitely not. We're the podcast that looks at a different aspect of the Doctor Who universe that features the incarnation of the Time Lord as played by Paul McGann. I'm Kenny Smith. And I'm Rebecca Chapman. You join us as we resume our quest to feature the Eighth Doctor's exploits whether on screen, in books, novellas, full cast audios, short stories, comics, animations, talking books, or anything else we can lay our eyes, ears, and hands upon. And talking of ears, Kenny, is that a new version of the theme for us, which I can hear in the background? It most certainly is. Like anime series in Japan, they change their tune every 13 episodes. So that's what we're doing, except they used to do that mid-season. We do it at the end of a season or the start of one. Yes, except for last week when we had our season one theme. Well, yes, that's true, but that was only because we had John Sponster on, and it would have been kind of rude not to use the version of the theme that he worked on, wouldn't it? I mean, very true. So am I right in saying that that version of the theme is one of the big finish ones from the Mary Shirley trilogy? It most certainly is. Bang on as ever, Becca. It is because over the course of our third season, which is this one, we're going to be featuring the four Eighth Doctor stories that have Mary Shelley in them as his companion. Have you ever read Frankenstein or The Modern Prometheus, as it's subtitled, in its original 1818 printing? I have indeed. I love Frankenstein. It's up there with Dracula for me. So good. It's very clever being a story within a story within a story because it's not a straightforward linear tale. Yes. It's a bit like the book that I've been reading recently. I've been reading Empire of the Vampire recently. Oh. Which is very, very good. I know, completely off topic, and I'm really sorry about that. But uh, (laughs) it's essentially a vampire hunter has been captured by the vampires, and he's telling his story to the vampire who has captured him so that he can write it down. It's very good. So it's a story within a story, because then you get bits of him talking to the vampire. It's it's very good. Very good. So what's the name of it again? It's called Empire of the Vampire by Jay Kristoff. Uh, Empire of the Vampire. I wonder if there's a sequel. It could be like Umpire of the Vampire when they play sports and stuff. <laughs> it is going to be a trilogy, and I'm very excited for the second one. Oh, interesting. Oh, the other thing that's interesting is, of course, that this Mary Shelley story was actually sort of referred to way back in the very first Paul McGann story from Big Finish, the 16th release from Big Finish altogether. Right at Ooh, the start. Storm warning. Of, yes, right at the start of Storm Warning. And let's hear that reference now. Tardis manual, Tardis manual, Tardis manual. I'm not here, are you? I really must sort through these shelves properly some century soon. Oh. Agatha Christie, the murder of Roger Ackroyd. First printing, signed, with the last page missing. Now I'll never know who done it. Now, let's see. War and Peace, the I Spy Book of British Birds, the Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Just look at the binding on this one. 
Published 1831 and in mint condition, too. Now, isn't this the edition with the preface all about that time when... Yes. Yes, it is. In the summer of 1816, we visited Switzerland and became the neighbours of Lord Byron. At first, we spent pleasant hours on the lake or wandering on its shores. But it proved a wet, ungenial summer and incessant rain confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories fell into our hands. We will each write a ghost story, said Byron. There were four of us. Well, that's wrong for a start. I busied myself to think of a story, one which would speak to the mysterious fears of our nature, to curdle the blood and quicken the beatings of the heart. Oh, Mary, Mary, if only you could have told the real story. So there we go, it was seeded back there, a throwaway line, but that's the wonders about Doctor Who and Big Finish. You can extrapolate one line and make a whole series of audios out of them. Indeed, Irene, we only need to think about all of the things that Russell T Davis and Moffat managed to create out of nowhere, seemingly, until you went, no! Yeah, they're very clever men, those two. Very, very, very clever. I like it. <laughs> so our third run begins with Mary's story, which sees the Doctor meet Mary for the first time. Absolutely. And because I'm a big finished loyalist, that was me slapping my chest there in pride. This is the definitive and correct version of how the Doctor met Mary Shelley. Any other suggestions are, of course, just fan fiction. Ha! Now, I know you're joking, but let's not open that can of worms. <laughs> not, not yet, anyway. Okay. Why don't we meet our first guest instead? And again, I missed this one because I was at work when you recorded it. So we... I did have a chat with our old pal Jonathan Morris, who lives very near you, of course, uh, just up the M3, and he was the writer of that adventure. And here it is. Hi, I'm uh, Jonathan Morris, and I wrote a Doctor Who Mary's story. This must have been a wee bit of a treat for you, getting to go back and pick up on something that had been hinted at in stories like Storm Warning and Shadow without being too clear about what actually happened. I don't know if it was a treat or not. It was. An, it was certainly came as a surprise. I can fill you in the background of why it happened. It's all down. It's all Scott Gray's fault, basically, <laughs> uh, because Alan had this idea of doing a, a release where it's for companions, where he, Alan Barnes, would write the, the Mary Shelley story, and Scott Gray, who does the Doctor Magazine comic strip, would write the story for Izzy, the the comic strip companion. And Scott didn't want to do that. He wasn't happy about writing audios at all. So Alan had to write that one. And then, so he asked me to do the Mary Shelley one. I'm not quite sure why he asked me. I think it's partly because I'd done the Charles Darwin one and I'd done the sort of um, the, the Haunting of Thomas Brewster, both of which sort of showed that I didn't skimp when it came to historical research, particularly the Thomas Brewster one, where I, I sort of went, went far too far in terms of um, researching Victorian slang. So I was given this brief that it had to be, uh, had to fill in this gap that before storm warning, I think the eighth doctor had been traveling with Mary Shelley and that I think Joe Lidster had already established in terra firma that the eighth doctor had been traveling with um, Samson and Gemma in that period as well. So I had to somehow make it fit in with that too. Uh, because obviously it's vitally important, all fits. So that was that was the sort of starting point. And then it was just like, you you can do a story about Mary Shelley. You've got this number of characters, and it's like, well, that's used up. Everyone who's in the house, I've got no one else. 
and that sort of um, led me into doing the story. I think it's rather fantastic. The level of detail and so much that you get in there in such a short space of time. Were you a big fan of the book? Frankenstein. Yes. Uh, I, <laughs> I could be anything else. I went back and read it. I'd read it as um, when I was about 14 or 15. And reading it again, I realised that when I was 14 or 15, I had skipped most of it. Because it's, it's basically a short story with a whole lot of a framing narrative around that to make it longer and another framing narrative around that and another one around that and so i just sort of found the bits in the middle which is the actual story and just just try and get sort of close to what the actual the real story of um, frankenstein is but then you have to sort of print the legend a bit that people expect certain things in a frankenstein story anyway so it's just trying to take it in a different area where it isn't an alien monster where where the actual the resurrection is a good idea. It turns out to be a good thing that they've um, they've strapped this carcass to the roof and it's been hit by lightning. I mean, my main research for this, I did. I read the middle of Frankenstein, and I think I looked at um, online. They had Mary Shelley's diaries, which is the main source that any historical book has for this era. And so it was just nice to go straight to the source and read the actual diary entries, and. Also to see that there's sort of gaps in the diary of where she'll do an entry of going, I'm starting to write my book now, and then for three or four days later, it'll be something else. And it's like, okay, there's little gaps in there where this Doctor Who story could have taken place. I particularly liked the, the reference to Lord Byron when he's there and talking about the Doctor and uh, given that the, the shorthand way to describe the Eighth Doctor's look as being Byronic, I think there's some nice wee interplay there as well. and. I take you had a bit of fun with that. Yeah, I think that was sort of irresistible just to have a sort of a joke there because it's it's one of those sort of <laughs> uh, dilemmas I have when writing these things of you see a corny joke just sort of com- coming into view and you go, well, I could, I could resist that joke, but then all the reviews will say, why didn't Johnny do the Byronic joke? So you've got to do it just because that's what people want. That's what they <laughs> expect. And... So you just sort of put it in there in passing as a little sort of character line and throw it away. I could have gone much further and been really naff where Lord Byron takes his look from the Eighth Doctor, but I'm, I'm, I'm very aware that certain better informed people on historical fashions would tell me that the Eighth Doctor's look wasn't Byronic. Um, so um, it was just something that turned up in the uh, books, in the Eighth Doctor books as a sort of, sort of um, like you say, a sort of shorthand, a sort of cliche almost. Yeah, like a cricketer, an Edwardian cricketer with his pleasant open face and such like. So how did you find researching the likes of Percy Shelley and the others in the Via Diodati? I sort of, you know, did a sort of thumbnail bit of research on them, to be honest. I, I, there's because, you know, you could read a 800 page biography on Lord Byron. And so my, my research was sort of limited to that time period and the time immediately before it, because what happens afterwards doesn't have anything to do with my story. And I knew a bit of about um, the Romantic Poets anyway, because I sort of studied them for A-level. So, I mean, the only sort of thing I sort of, I remember changing was, um, in reality, Mary Shelley has a baby with her, as you would find out in the, when they did it, uh, when they adapted it for a Doctor Who story on television. And they didn't adapt it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, when I was writing this, I was going, I don't think we can have the baby in there, because that would just make it impossible for her to leave. I couldn't buy the idea of Mary Shelley leaving to go off on adventures with the Eighth Doctor and leaving a baby behind. 
so that's that's why that that baby isn't in there because it was just so occasion that's the sort of thing with his with historical stuff you you need to know enough that when you're getting things wrong you you're doing it on purpose for the sake of the story you're not just getting things wrong because you haven't done the research yeah absolutely best way to do it it's why like the facts get in the way of a good story as the sun have been doing since the 60s anyway less about their tabloid scumminess <laughs> i particularly like the fact that we've got a monstrous time distorted eighth doctor which must have been good fun giving paul to something a little bit different to do as well i'm just listening to it back and certainly in the writing of it i was writing two eighth doctors because the um the young eighth doctor who turns up halfway through is very much written in the mold of the tv movie eighth doctor he has that sort of and even to the point where he's sort of when he's mentioning joe turner doing paintings and um when he can sort of see into people's futures and stuff. That's that's very much the TV movie version, which Paul McGann got, he nailed that. And then the monster is the much older, much later version of the Eighth Doctor, which again is a, is a slightly different character. And so, I mean, what the what the story does is it sort of bookends the Eighth Doctor's reign, run on television. Well, well his run in continuities were, where you go, the, the, um, the, the monstrous Eighth Doctor is one right at the end, and the lovely puppyish ironic one is the one who's right at the beginning. So yeah, that was that was an interesting thing to do. I mean, um, I was very conscious though that um, when you do bookend things, you have to, you, you're sort of closing off possibilities for other writers, and I didn't want to do that because that's you know, it's mean, it's selfish. So I was, I was very keen to leave certain bits vague and to add things going, oh, so you can mention other companions we haven't seen yet. So you can mention other adventures we haven't seen yet. So that, although I am closing it off a bit, I'm closing off and going, but it's there's much more stuff out there. There's plenty of room for other stories, which to be fair, they have used, they've used all that. So yeah, I didn't, because I could have gone, the, the future doctor could have gone, I remember this, 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 and this, and nothing else. And that would have closed it all off. And I was also very keen, because I think it's because of the fan politics at the time, or just because I'm a very nice person, to include companions from the uh, the books and the comic strips, and as well. And even I think I think I even mentioned the um, the companions from the Radio Times comic strip, because I wanted it to be like it's all part of his continuity. I'm not cutting things off. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm going. No, it all fits in there somewhere. Work it out, work it out yourselves. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The fact there's reference here and there to compassion and destry and such like. It's, it's a nice wee thing. I found it. It fit my head canon. I'm not quite sure how it works, but I'll work it out one day. I also like the fact that the older Doctor very much fits in with what we've come to discover with the Time War Doctor we've had with Big Finish and even indeed on TV where he's a little more world-weary and it's obviously you preempted that by several years with this script. Well, that's a, that's an interesting point actually because I've, I've also gone back and looked at my original pitch which is that the future Eighth Doctor has travelled back from a, an apocalyptic war and at the end he goes back to fight in this um, terrible war. The obvious hint being, this is the time war. It's the time war, everyone, he's in the time war. And I think Nick or Alan or David Richardson, whoever, whoever went, Johnny, you can't do that. We're, we d At the time, Big Finish didn't have a license for that, for the new series. 
and it was made very clear to me going you have to take out all the references you put to the new series johnny otherwise we'll lose our license and so there were other bits in there which i took out where um when the when, the, when he sees the tardis materialize in the sitting room he goes oh, the windows are the wrong size and i thought that that was quite funny and there's a line about the tardis interior regenerating and he's going i'll put it on the coral setting now and all these things are going no you will lose the license but that said you can still you can still get a bit of the new series stuff in there because the regeneration energy is this sort of golden glow which i took from the new series i got away with that and i got away with the tardis being powered by these sort of glowing green crystals which i took from um the age of steel the sideband story so i got away with a little bit but it was originally supposed to be yeah he's he'd come back from the time war with terrible terrible injuries but then yeah it had to be something else so it was he's infected with, with vitreous time and then and then you read the reviews later when they come in and people go oh i bet he got that i bet oh, do you know where i think he was infected by that i think he was in the time war <laughs> so people people think he's traveled back from the time war anyway even though i was very consciously making it clear that he, that it wasn't he was only having adventures within the terms of the big finish license <laughs> love it of course what did you think when you heard it back because i think it's a fab wee tale some great stuff in there and some brilliant sound design brilliantly realized with the music as well yeah i i wasn't at the recording i can't remember why i think um <laughs> who knows um you know sometimes you're invited sometimes it happens and they forget to invite you but so I, I only heard it when it was the finished product and I'm I'm delighted with it. I mean, I think Nick Briggs is underrated as a director because he's really, really good. I mean, I always, when you, when you send these scripts off to Big Finish, sometimes I don't know who's going to direct them. And I'm always sort of hoping going, oh, I hope Nick directs this because <laughs> he's the best. But sometimes he does and I'm always, I'm always delighted when he does it. But I'm always delighted when the other directors do it because there's so many other great directors doing stuff as well I mean you know, other directors have casts and all sorts of things so so yeah I th and it sort of hung together really well I I've in my sort of had I'm going I think it's too long I, looking back I'd go I think it should be no more than half an hour I think half an hour is pushing it and certainly listening to it today I was going oh I'll cut that cut that <laughs> but because it, it's just tiny bits of of fluff where you can go oh no that that steam would work out would work perfectly well without those six or seven lines let's just cut to the chase and i think it was um really beautifully done and it went down really really well so i was i'm absolutely delighted with the whole project it's a very engaging performance from julie cox as mary and the fact that it hints at future adventures in fact as i mentioned there's cybermen Little did you know what was to come, I would imagine. That. I'd imagine that it came as a bit of a surprise when you heard that they were going to do a, a wee monthly range trilogy. Yes, because um, I, I just looked at, looked at my own story on Wikipedia, which is always fun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it said that I wrote this to set up the trilogy, and I certainly didn't. I mean, I, I wrote this as a one-off. I had no expectation or intention that there'd be any more Mary Shelley stories. I mean, I didn't, I didn't rule it out. I didn't sort of close off the gap um, by having her come back at the end. But, um, but it's, it's certainly was not my intention. But I, so I think that just sort of shows that it went down really well, that she got more adventures and, you know, Izzy didn't. And, <laughs> and um, 
the, the, the book companion uh, didn't. And so, so I think it's just, it's lovely to sort of do this thing where I've opened up another little door, another sort of world of adventures has, has been has been created. And of course, the Doctor and the Via Diodati meeting Mary Shelley and Cybermen, an idea that popped up in television as well. So that's quite a fun thing, but you got there first. Yeah, it's an interesting one now, because when it actually happened, I was I was sort of, because <laughs> I didn't I didn't care really. I was just I was just sitting there going, I hope it's a good story, which is a you know, you always go in watching Doctor Who, going, I hope this is a good one. You know, I hope it, I expect it will be. They it's normally quite good, and so I mean, other people I saw other people were in sort of some some forms. I only sort of see the tip of the iceberg of this sort of stuff, but people were quite cross that it was um, that it was writing. Mary's story out of continuity, which was very flattering that they cared. You know, it's lovely. I didn't care because I'm sort of going, well, that was, that was, that was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. It was lovely when it came out. And, you know, I, I don't really, I've done so many things since. It's not like I'm hanging on to that as the, the, the crowning achievement of my writing career. So I was completely cool with it. And actually, I was, it was nice to see an, another version of the story. It, I mean, it, and also the whole point of the haunting of Billy Diodati is that it's changing history. It's rewriting it. So it doesn't matter that it doesn't fit because that's kind of the point. And a few people who'd, um, who'd watched it went, oh, it's good. You know, I liked, I liked it, you know, the Cyberman and stuff. But um, I think Johnny's story was better. And you, when people say that, you go, yes, that's lovely. It's lovely to hear because, you know, the person who wrote the TV version probably had... I don't know, three, three to six months to write about their version. Whereas Mary's story, I think I had one year, about two weeks to write it. And what you hear is pretty much the first draft, more or less. So it's a complete reflection of how good I can be on my first go. Whereas you know, with TV writers, they get to do 12, 15 drafts. So yeah, was, that, was, that was nice. So it's nice to be compared to something which is very, very good, and a few people, not many, hardly any, maybe maybe three, saying that your story was slightly better. <laughs> that, that's nice. So, so yeah, that's kind of cool. And now, of course, it means the Wikipedia page has to, has to, had a sort of mental breakdown, because <laughs> no one knows what happened at the Villa Delta at all now. I do like the last line. I think it's an absolute killer as well, that the Doctor is not the monster. I think it's it's fab. It does. It still makes me laugh when I hear it now. Yeah, I think that isn't in the synopsis. I think that just occurred to me when I was writing it, and that it fitted together. And that's one of those things where you go, "Oh, that's just such a a neat joke to end on." That people think I've set up the whole story <laughs> just to justify <laughs> that joke, but I hadn't. It just it just popped out at the end because you're you know you're always trying to think of a good final line to go out on. Because a lot of the time, that's um, the, the, the only parts that people tend to remember of stories are is the end, you know, the last five minutes. So you need, want to make the last five minutes really good. So yeah, it was, it was it was an interesting thing to just sort of have that sort of slightly metafictional moment that the the doctor is aware that there is this long running dispute that anyone who calls the monster Frankenstein is absolutely and terribly wrong, and it's only the doctor's name. So. Yeah, that was a fun thing to end on. <laughs> Fantastic. Johnny, as always, thank you so much. You're very welcome, and I'll, I'll see you for the next one. Sure will. 
he is such a gent and so diplomatic about the audio versus TV Doctor Who debate. Which did you prefer, Mary's story or the haunting of the Via Diodati? There you go, that's you on the spot. I, I, I genuinely don't think that I've watched the haunting of the... I No. <laughs> oh, well. I don't think not... I've watched it, so of course Mary's story. <laughs> well, there we go, that makes it easy. That is, your, that is the easy get-out clause. Um, and I've already... I, I should have said that even if I had watched it, shouldn't I? Just like, oh, no, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's meet our second guest. Indeed, it's time to wheel out another Scott, as this time it was the story's sound designer, the wonderful Fia Cochran. So let's have a wee chat with her now. And when I spoke to her, she was in the basement of the British Library, I think it was, doing some research and restoring some audio stuff. See, when you said Scott, I thought you meant like someone called Scott and was really no. confused for a minute. <laughs> no, it's uh, another Scottish person from north of the border, there from the go. land of the Scots. <laughs> She's a Celt. Ah. Hello, I'm Thea Cochran and I was the sound designer for Mary's Story. Thea, welcome to Pieces of Eight, and it's lovely to have another Scottish voice on the show as always. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yay! So, we could just start off as we ask all our guests, what do you remember about Paul McGann's casting in the TV movie? I think when I was quite young, I probably watched him um, when it was first broadcast in 96, 97, I think. Um, um, I didn't have great opinions about the casting at the time because it was just, I'd been watching bits of Pertwee and Sylvester McCoy, I remember from when I was a kid, but I wasn't massively into it. I didn't have the videos and stuff, so it was kind of my first little slice of Doctor Who at all that was contemporary at the time. So I, I was just like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. Maybe it'll be like this. We didn't know at the time it was only going to be a one-off thing until Big Finish picked it up. So yeah, I don't remember having a strong opinion either way. I just remember thinking this is a bit more fancy than The Lake of Inferno, which is, that, that was the, the last one I remember seeing before that one. And where did you see it for the first time? Did you get the video of it or did you I, watch it on TV? I think we watched it on TV and then I didn't see it again for a long time until I think I rented it on DVD when I started working on, on Big Finish stuff in about 2006, 2007. And then I got given the Revisitations box set for Christmas one year, which I think was a, probably after I worked on Mary's story. But I've got my own copy now so I can watch it whenever. <laughs> Yay! So it must have been a wee bit of a thrill then when you were told or, or asked if you would like to do Mary's story given that this is sort of the, the first new Doctor that you saw live as a fan. Yeah, that was quite exciting and, and also coming from, I'd, I'd worked a lot in the Bernie Summerfield stories and there was a, in amongst the Company of Friends collection was a Bernie story as well so it felt like an easy way in for me like starting off with Benny and the Doctor and then having the Doctor and different other companions. Yeah, it was quite exciting. Just having all those people around that you'd seen on television is quite exciting just in general and be like, oh, that's their voice in my computer while I'm editing it. And you're hearing it before everyone else does, which I always imagine must be a thrill. There's a bit of that. And then there's, yeah, you, you worry a little bit going in that um, you'll mess it up in some way. And it's quite hard to mess it up because obviously the directors captured exactly the, the takes that they wanted in the first place. So as long as you follow their notes and you can go back and forth a couple of times maybe on individual lines and alternative takes and it generally works out pretty well I think but yeah it's exciting to start with and hear that raw material yeah because you mentioned there the other big finishes I take it you'd been following the range at this point yeah I think 
because I had a friend who was writing for them before I started doing any work for them, so I'd been paying attention to the stuff that, that they'd been working on. And I listened to some of the stuff that was on the radio one Christmas. I remember hearing um, Chimes of Midnight at Christmas time on BBC Seven, as it was at the time. And then I bought a couple of the CDs before I started working for them, so that was quite exciting. But yeah, this, this was one of my first proper monthly Doctor Who stories. Yes, it is fab. I suppose in some ways as well, when you're presented with a story with all those horror film tropes, in some ways that at the same time makes your job easier and also makes it more difficult. So you've got an idea of what it should sound like, but you don't want it to sound like you're copying someone. Yeah, I didn't want it to sound too cliched. So I was worried at the time, having just done, this was um, one of the of, of a four-parter, and I was trying to, do, I was doing the music for all the previous ones as well, and I got to this one thinking, I don't know what this music needs to sound like. And the director, who was Nick Briggs, very thankfully decided he would do the music because he had a very clear idea of what he wanted it to sound like. Also, I think um, he hadn't done any music for Big Finish for a little while because he'd kind of taken over executive production duties and was doing a lot more of that side of things. So I think he was quite happy to get a music project that he could just slot into. And that took a lot of the heat off me from the point of view of not being sure about what to do with the music and, and make that work. But from the point of view of the sound effects, yeah, you could go down the sort of 1930s style Frankenstein elements and play that up, but then you had to make it fit with the more realistic-ish um, other aspects. So there's a lot of stuff just around the villa Diodati. There's stuff around Lake Geneva, I guess it is. I, I remember it being a lake in the Yes, I think it's Lake Geneva. And the more impressionistic stuff of um, things happening with the TARDIS as part of the story. I suppose that poses challenges in itself. I mean, where do you source noises like that from? Which side of things? Because, in terms of the, for example, lightning strike sounds and electrical buzzes and crackles, because that always fascinates me. That side of stuff. Yeah, a lot of that was library sounds because I didn't have the time to wait for a good lightning storm and try and record some myself. <laughs> Although I did have some thunder. Like if I if I was set up for a recording and some thunder happened, I would just get a mic out the window and get get something down as quickly as possible. Looking at my files from the original sessions, which I was having a quick look at yesterday. I went up and did recording of actual wind and rain. So there was new new wind and rain recordings in there. And some from inside different things, like I got some from inside like a wooden hut to get the sound of the rain on wood. And I got some a lot of wind whistling through trees because the trouble with wind is that unless it's moving through something, it doesn't make any noise. So yeah, that was a, a combination of newly recorded stuff and some stock sounds. I find that fascinating, the fact that as a sound designer, people don't appreciate the work that you put in to go and do something like that. The fact you're getting drenched in the process, I would imagine. And, uh, and that it was that dark did. as well. I think what had happened was I'd walked my dog, realised the wind sounded great today, and then got the dog back home, dried the dog, then gone back out with my recording device by myself. And by that point, it was starting to get dark because it was December. And, and yeah, it was. I, I suddenly realised I was standing in the woods by myself in the dark, hadn't really thought about how I was going to get back again easily. So it was just sort of picking my way through the rabbit holes and so on, trying to get back to the, the main road. And in terms of software that you use, how do you use it in terms of placing things around? Do you build up like a 3D room and then you can just place things from which way winds will blow left to right? Sometimes I have it. So I generally edit in Pro Tools, but you could do this in almost any of the sort of popular editing software where I've got an idea of like where everything in the room is left to right and gone, okay, th this door is here and wherever we're back in the room, that door will still be there. And I tend not to mess with the viewer 
viewpoint too much. Mm -hmm. So if someone leaves in one particular direction, they know that's where they've gone, they can't come back from a different direction. And you do get the occasional weird one where you'll be working on something and then realise that their footsteps have gone off in one direction and their voice has gone off in another direction. <laughs> but yeah, generally I've got a picture in my head of each room, roughly, in the same way that you'd kind of block out a theatrical performance on a stage. Like I, I know roughly where things are in that room and then where people are in that space as well. I find that sort of thing fascinating. It's just those things that people just sort of, it magically happens. And obviously, as I know yourself and quite a few of the other big Finnish sound designers, it's just quite nice to get a wee explanation as to how these things work. So there is an appreciation for things that people do. And thank you for it. It's lovely. Okay. Do you remember this one causing any particular issues or was it fairly straightforward? I think I'd have been more stuck if I hadn't done The Phantom of the Opera the year before. So because that had to be done pretty quickly because it was going straight to BBC Seven for broadcast as well as to Big Finish for release, I think it was one of the first downloads that they had up. I'd planned and managed to get in, into a museum and um, out of hours with my recording device and I went around and recorded as many doors and bits of furniture and clocks just like running normally to use in the background of different scenes for that and I was I meant I had this big pool of stuff I could draw on whilst I was working on a, a story set in a similar kind of time period albeit in a very different location and a very different plot so I was able to grab those like doors bits of furniture all that kind of sound um, wooden stairs because I, I was living in a modern bungalow at the time so I wouldn't have been able to record someone running up and down wooden stairs and I had all that already a lot of the stuff I needed was that luckily sort of I was also helping out a theatre that was getting renovations so they had a couple of doors that we knew were going to be replaced and I was able to just sort of hammer them apart whilst recording it and um, which was needed for the sound of the sort of monster breaking down the door which goes on for a long time. I needed a lot of like wood crunching sounds and like hammering on doors kind of like and the door giving way over the course of about two and a half minutes. So it was good to be able to record some fresh stuff for that because I don't know if I'd have been able to get enough out of a library to make it last that long. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And how do you look back on it now? Is it one that you're quite happy with? I think partly because I didn't do the music, it was great to sort of send it off when I was finished with the sound and have it come back with this sort of lush orchestral stuff happening. And also like it meant that Nick could as the director as well, could move things around if you wanted more gaps between scenes and that kind of stuff. So it felt, it's great to listen back and I will always have stuff I can listen to and go, oh, I do that differently now. But that's just how stuff always goes. And at some point it has to get released. So um, <laughs> it's always going to be like that. Yeah, that's the creative. The creatives never have anything perfect. It's got, there's always something you can do better. Yeah, and I guess like with download, it's always tempting to say, oh, I could just change that and then we could put a new download up. But then you end up with it never, uh, never having a definitive version. It goes a bit kind of Star Wars, I guess. <laughs> That's a very good analogy. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and chatting with us on Pieces of Eight. It's been brilliant. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks to both Thea and Johnny for taking the time to have a chat with us on Pieces of Eight. Great story, this. Absolutely love it. I think it's a wonderful start. I mean, originally it was conceived as a one-off just to showcase the, the Eighth Doctor and his different companions. And I absolutely loved it. I think it was a great start. The three other stories are good, but I really enjoyed Mary's story. I loved Mary's story. It it takes you away from the usual, oh, look, the Doctor's got a new companion. I wonder who they are. And you're like, oh, I know who that is. I know everything about her. 
Yeah. For example, did you know that Mary Shelley had sex on her mother's grave? I don't. Voice think... in the background. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, uh, that voice in the background is going, "What? Shock! I did not know that. That is, I'm sure there must be a term for that of some sort of philia. Um, I'm sure there is. But yeah, no, she had sex on top of her mother's grave. Um, amongst many other things, the woman's a legend. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Uh, I don't think I remember hearing that in one, a mention of that in the audios, but um, I can imagine why. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that, that feels like the sort of thing that probably wouldn't be mentioned. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I look forward to discovering more about the rest of this trilogy in the coming weeks. Definitely. I mean, that's all we've got time for this week. But next time, we're going to be back with what I believe is one of your favourite Eighth Doctor novels from the BBC Books range. That's absolutely correct. It's one with a cover that's quite disturbing, and it's still fondly thought of by fans, as I discovered when I mentioned it when rereading it last year and mentioning that on Twitter. We're talking about Eater of Wasps by Trevor Baxendale. Ugh, even the title's enough to make you feel ill. I know. And I don't think you've even seen the cover yet. I'll email it to you later. Yeah, I I won't be looking forward to that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. We will see you all next week. Most definitely will. Bye. Bye. Bzzz.